my, my name is Joe Mueller. I'm a member here at Remedy. I've been a member, I guess, for a little while now. Um, FUD is not preaching today because his wife is imminently going to give birth. Um, everyone hoped that it would have happened by now, but it hasn't yet. So um, I am, I'm sort of stepping in and helping uh, fill in uh, during this time. And then uh, we are actually going to be back in the journey, but because... Uh, Chris, you're supposed to have the baby last weekend. We're going to be using last week's readings for what we're uh, going to be looking at today. So our text is going to be from Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, we're going to look th- through uh, verses 13 through 3-5. So if you would uh, just stand for the reading of, of God's word to honor it, and I will read our text for us today. Uh, It begins, but we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So to, today our text, I, I think, seeks to encourage us to lay down our lives for the sake of others. To do work. And I want all of us to do this work and to do it with all of our hearts. But I don't want us just to work. I don't want us just to do something. I want it to be Christ-captivated, soul-satisfying, life-giving, lost-calling work. And, it is to, and if it's to be that, if it's to be that type of work, it has to be rooted and grounded in something more true, more sure, happier than what we normally associated with work. Work is something that we see as a burden, And this is not what I want to do for us today. And so I'm going to spend the majority of our time grounding what I'm going to call us to do, what I think this text demands us to do, in the realities that this text unpacks for us. This trueness, this sureness, this happiness. And I think that this trueness, this sureness, this happiness is what will get us moving, will get us motivated, will get us active in the work that I think God is calling us from this text. So we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 3 through 5. And we're going to see how it, how it uh, 
references back to the first part of Thessalonians and how it reaches forward into the future of what Paul talks about to end Second Thessalonians. And we're going to unpack the meaning and we're going to see how this pivotal text helps us understand this book and the call of Christ in our life. So now our text begins today with the word, but. The, the function of this word is to draw a contrast between something. And, and so we have to know why this but is there in order to understand what it means. It's 2.13, but we ought always to give thanks for you. Why is that but there? What's it doing in our text? Why is it making a contrast? Well, previously, Paul is talking about Jesus' second coming. In, this is the, the fields of harvest, right? So we're talking about Jesus coming again. Paul is talking about Jesus' second coming and how it impacts the life of the church previously in the letter. And especially how it will affect them in the midst of their intense persecutions at the hands of the Jews. There are three main blocks that, that we're going to cover very briefly here that help give us this, this understanding, this idea. In 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul opens up his letter with a greeting of thanksgiving. And he uses something that should sound very familiar because we just read it. He says, we ought to always, always give thanks to God for you. The exact same words that we see in 2.13 with the exception of the but. In this section, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, who the letter is, is said to be from, give thanks for the church in Thessalon, Thessalonica, say that 15 times fast, um, because of their faith and love and that they're brothers and that they're growing and increasing. And this is Paul's shorthand way of saying that they're Christians and they're acting like it. This is good. This is awesome. They are a church. They follow Christ. And um, but they are being persecuted, and that's clear in these verses as well, because Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are proud, they're happy, they're encouraged that this body of believers are showing steadfastness and faith in the midst of great affliction and persecution. And if you're, if you're interested in seeing how bad it was for the church there, read, go back and read Acts 17. Um, to see how upset the Jewish community becomes in, in Thessalonica. Uh, again, say that 15 times fast, uh, because of the gospel that Paul brings to the region. In, five, in verses 5 through 12, uh, he keeps up this suffering theme. And he gives the church hope that one day the enemies of the church will be destroyed when Jesus comes again. Uh, if you look at uh, 1, 6, and 7, it says, Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. To, to say this another way, Paul is saying, you are suffering now, but Jesus is coming again. He will afflict your afflictors and grant you relief. He will judge the world. The, the persecutors, the afflictors, uh, punishment is described here in verses 7 and 8. As eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And this is supposed to come as comfort to the church there. Because they are so hard pressed by them. 
And this eternal separation from God's presence for all of eternity is, is what the book of Revelation describes as the second death. If you look in Revelation 2.11, 26, 20.14, and 21.8. So, so God is going to judge these people completely and utterly. And in, in 2, uh, 1 through 12, which is our next section, our third block, Paul keeps up this theme of the enemies... Right, The enemies are, are, are throughout all these sections. Enemies of the church and Jesus' second coming. While also dealing with an attack on the church's understanding of when Christ is actually going to come again. So, so for some reason, somebody wanted to convince the church there that Jesus has already come again. But Paul says that this can't be the case. It can't be so. Because Jesus um, hasn't come back because the rebellion hasn't come first. There's going to be this great end-time rebellion. That's uh, in 2-3. And, and in this end-time rebellion, there's going to be a man of lawlessness who's going to be revealed. Again, that's in 2-3. But to be sure, the mystery of, of this lawlessness is already at work, if you look at 2-7. So it is crystal clear, if you read the section, that this man of lawlessness is God's enemy. And, and that there are people who follow him are also God's enemy. And that... When Jesus comes again, Jesus will kill the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth. And bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So all the things that this man of lawlessness has built up for himself, Jesus will show up and it will be brought to nothing. Instantly. Amazingly. Beautifully. And so this section shows us that God's enemies are going to be dealt with decisively when Jesus returns, with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. That, that goes back, I guess, two sermons to when Fudd was preaching out of 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And he obviously, this man of lawlessness in Jesus, hasn't come yet because these things haven't happened yet. We're all still here. And it's going to go down this certain way to summarize 2.12 in Second Thessalonians, all of God's enemies may be condemned. And so now we've just summarized that whole first part of the book very, very briefly, very quickly. And now it brings us right up to our passage that we are considering today. And the first word of our passage is but. And in contrast, so the but is now in contrast to our enemies. But, as opposed to these enemies who are going to be destroyed, but we ought always to give thanks for you. And so Paul is making a contrast here between the church and its enemies. And so in this contrast, we're going to see who the church is. And that's sort of our, our, our first big point. Church, who are you? What does God say about you? Who has God said you are? And so we're going to make this contrast crystal clear. It, it can get a little bit lost in, in the text, but I think it's crystal clear. And these, these two groups, the world and the church, are so distinct that we have to keep this in mind. It, it becomes very easy for us to, to start seeing the world as not really the world and the church is not really the church. But I, wa I want us to see this crystally clear. So we're going to go through each phrase of 13 through 14. And we're going to see who you are as the church. So verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you 
as the first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first phrase that falls to us is brothers beloved by the Lord. Brothers is a family term, right? You call people in your family who are, who are men brothers. Or if they're your sibling, you call your father who's a man. Right? It's your father. Anyway, uh, it's showing us that there is a new familial reality created in the church that aligns us horizontally to one another and vertically to God in new ways. In Christ, we have each other as brother and sister and our church as mother. If you remember Matthew twelve forty nine through 50, Jesus, stretching out his hand toward his disciples, says... Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so horizontally speaking, when we look at each other, we are brought from diverse origins and checkered pasts into this family. The most important family you will ever have and to which you will ever belong. But this family isn't about who you are as brothers and sisters. That isn't only what it's about. We aren't just gathered together. We are also aligned vertically to God in a new and profound way. Before, we were enemies of God. We were children of wrath. But God made us his children through Christ. God is our father. When Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to use our father who is in heaven because it, we forget or we don't understand that God is our father in a new and profound way that he wasn't before. God is our father. And, and as our father, it very easily flows into the, the next part of our section here that we are also brothers beloved by the Lord. Now, what does it mean to be loved? What does it be, mean to be loved by God? Now, certainly God's love is vast and deep and wide and high and intricate and beautiful and delicate and relentless and effective and on and on and on and on. And, and we could talk all about those characteristics, but we don't have time. It, it's exceptional. God's love is exceptional, both in its strength of feeling, of how he feels about you, as well as the lengths to which he will go to make it known to you. God is a pursuing God who wants his love to be felt and to be known. But what is so amazing about God's love is that it's also intensely personal. The very core of being loved by God, of being beloved by the Lord, is to be known by God and to know God. Just consider what, what Jesus prayed in John 17 in, in the great high priestly prayer. In, in verse 1 it says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, eternal life to all who have, whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you continue reading, jump all the way to verse 25. It says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, the world does not know you, 
I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let me read, let me read verse 26 again. I made known to them your name. Jesus is saying, I showed them who you are. I displayed to them your glory. And I will continue to make it known for the purpose of, with the aim in mind, to accomplish the purpose that, that's why Jesus is going to keep on making him known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So being loved by God and having the love of God in you is a direct result of knowing who God is in a personal way. This is personal knowledge. God knows you individually. He sees you as a person. He cares for you and the cares that affect you. He weeps with you. He sings over you. And Christian, God knows you. And wants to be known by you. And listen to, listen to who this God is. This God who knows you. This is, what, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 27 through 30. This is who Jesus is. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And to any, who, anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, now here's, here's where Christ's personal invitation to you today. This is what Christ calls you to and begs of you and offers you with himself. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is personal rest. This is rest for your personal, individual soul. God loves you as a person. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Today, even today, come to the God of the universe who wants to give you rest. Who knows you and knows your life and what goes on in your day to day. And loves you and wants to be Rest to you. So Christian, you are part of an eternal family, the church, whose ties run deeper and stronger and longer than any family you might ever have forever. And you are in a relationship of loving knowing with the creator of the universe. The God of all knowledge has personal knowledge of you. Now, how did this come to pass? How, how did God come to know you and to love you and bring you into his family? Our verse, our verse tells, our passage tells us today. It's not because you, you actualized the good intentions that you had in your own being to, to live this blessed life. It is because God has chosen you as first fruits to be saved. Not only are you part of God's family, but you are also part of God's worldwide harvest set apart for him and his purpose in this world. Your life, your purpose, belongs to God and his purpose for you is salvation. You have been chosen out of the world, not because you deserved it, 
Not because, but because God is gracious to you. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. Ephesians 2 helps us see this crystally clear. And you were dead. Think about that. First fruits. First fruits is like a harvesting term. No farmer picks dead fruit for his harvest. No farmer picks dead fruit for his harvest. But God does. God did when he chose you. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In other words, you were no different than the rest of the world. But God... Again, these buts in scripture are beautiful, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So it's this image of the farmer going along the grapevine, and there's a cluster of dead grapes. And he picks it, and as he's picking it, it comes to life. It becomes this beautiful harvest. Fresh, succulent, beautiful grapes. And raised us up with him in verse 6. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You were picked, you were chosen to be loved and to be known by God. Why? Not because you were perfect, not because you had it all together, not because you were born in the right family or did the right thing or made the right choice. Not because you were better than anyone else. Only because God picked you because he is kind and compassionate and slow to anger, and merciful, and gracious, and loving. And so I ask, do you know him? Do you know this God? Do you know his kindness and his mercy? And so next up, we're going to look, because Paul follows this, he, he lays this out for us, and then he uses this word through. Why does he use the word through here? Through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. It's interesting. This phrase is is interesting. It doesn't seem to make sense to me. I wouldn't have put it down there if I was writing this book. But I think he does it for a very strategic and very important reason. Paul is unpacking for us the means by which God achieves this choosing. The way that he designed for God's people to be known in the world. There are no secret Christians, right? There are Christians who are Christians because they live this out in their lives. They, they have a sanctification by the Spirit and a belief in the truth. In, in Mark, when, when Jesus first starts his ministry in Mark, chapter 1, he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent in Jesus' early message. 
corresponds to what Paul's talking about when he says sanctification by the Spirit. Repent and sanctification by the Spirit are the same thing. Believe in the gospel is what Jesus says. And Paul correspondingly says belief in the truth. The gospel is truth. Your word is truth is what Jesus says. So let's examine each phrase here a little bit more. So through. Again, I said that's, that's weird. I wouldn't have written it that way, but Paul did. And, and this through here is to remind us of what he's just said. What he's just covered. Namely, that you were brought into the family of God and chosen for salvation. This adoption into God's family and choosing for salvation is a work wrought through the sanctification of the Spirit. And what this means is that in Christ, the Spirit, the Spirit, not, not you, I mean, you, you participate in this, but the Spirit is the one doing it. The Spirit is making you actually able to turn from your wickedness. You can now act like God in situations. You can behave and do and think and feel just like the God of the universe as a result of what the Spirit is doing changing you. This has negative, I don't do, and positive, do consequences. You will stop living like the world you used to live in when you were by nature a child of wrath. By the work and power of the Spirit in your life, you will be renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That's Colossians 3.10. To be more like God and Jesus and how you act as the Spirit sanctifies you. Now, what's even more amazing is this is part of a beautiful chain that Paul establishes in Romans 8.29-30. through 30. I'll read it. For those whom he foreknew, he also, be, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And, and what's... What's, I think, very interesting here is that there's order to this. You're predestined, and then the pre, you're predestined to be conformed. Sanctification falls right after God knows you. God knows you, and he predestines that you will become like his son. And remember our point above that God's love is knowing you? So after... Knowing is predestined sanctification. Continuing in Romans, in order that you might be the firstborn of many brothers. Again, that family term. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And we'll run into calling in 2.14, where Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.14, To this you were called through our gospel. So he is called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. That God sent his word and his spirit to dwell with us and transform us into the image of Jesus, of God, is no small thing. That he would do it even before we were born and accomplish his purpose in us is mind-blowing. And what did we do to deserve this? The answer is nothing. You did nothing to deserve this. We get to be like God. Free from sin, pure of motive, perfect in behavior, faithful forever. Just like our God. God is doing that in you. And there's a second through here. Through belief in the truth. 
This this is the second mechanism that God, another means by which God is demonstrating his love toward us and inviting us into his family. Your entrance into God's family is from a simple trust and belief in the truth of the gospel. Latching on to it, grabbing a hold of Christ and holding on to him for dear life. Believing that what he says is true and true for you personally. Christ's death on the cross is not something that he did for people other than you. It's what Christ did for you. And we have to, we have to take this truth. And belief in the truth is not just a one-time thing where we say we believe it, we sign our name to a card, and it's done, it's over with. Belief in the truth is a continuing, an ongoing, a moment by moment, over and over and over and over again, grasping a hold of the feet of Jesus and saying, it's for me too, right? It's for me too. Because it is. Christ died to save sinners. And as we fall day in and day out, as we sin because we will, we latch on to the promise that Christ has given us, that he will save us from all of our sins. Christ lived the perfect life and he died the substitutionary death. And he rose again victoriously on the third day as king of all creation. He is the great lion-like lamb who leads his sheep to safety and breathes destruction on his enemies. This is the Jesus who we cling to. This is the Jesus who we fall before in worship. And what's going to happen as we do, as we are sanctified by the Spirit, as we believe in the truth of the gospel and cling on to Jesus? What's the end here? The end of all this, the promise, the great promise God has laid out before us, is entrance into glory, into paradise, into his presence for eternity. Starting again at 13. But we ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end we obtain the glory of Jesus. Seated at the right hand of God the Father. The perfection of who Jesus is. Heaven forever in his presence. And so you, church, you are a body of God's chosen people. Not because you were great, not because you were good, but because God is gracious. And you have been appointed for the supreme destiny of knowing God for all of eternity. This is, this is absolutely amazing and mind-blowing. And it is empowering. And it is beautiful. And it is motivating. And this is all true. It is all true. All these things I'm saying to you are true. They are realer than any reality you think exists. And they are, it is a universal witness of the, of the church. All Christians through all time have always believed this to be true. This is reality that you can and should spend all your extra time thinking about. And cramming into as many moments as, of your life as you can. Because again, it is beautiful and it is true. But as, as beautiful as this is, 
as wonderful and marvelous that it is that God saves sinners, not because of any good thing that they have done, but simply because Jesus is great. As beautiful as that is, it's not the only truth that's present here in this text. Because remember, our text today begins with a but. There's a truth about the world here in this text as well. And it's not so great. In fact, I I think it should touch us in exactly the opposite way that the truth about who the church is should. Because there there, there is in this world hundreds and thousands, millions, billions of people who do not know Christ. Who do not have this personal knowledge of who he is. And what does our text have to say about them? What? What is their destiny? What is their end? So, whereas the church are members of God's family and are loved by him and are in a relationship of personal knowledge with the God of the universe, the world does not know him. That's from 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Whereas the church are set apart for the purpose of God and appointed unto salvation, not by any great merit of their own, but only because God has chosen to grant them mercy and grace, the world will suffer punishment and eternal destruction in one nine, and, and they will be repaid with affliction and the vengeance of the Lord. That's from 1, 6, and 8. Whereas the church is being sanctified by the Spirit into holiness and life, the world does not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They do not obey. That's one eight, And actually, they take pleasure in unrighteousness. That's 2.12. Whereas the church believes the truth about Jesus, and Jesus is so central, because without Jesus, you don't have the gospel. You don't have belief in the truth. You can't believe truth without Jesus. Whereas the church believes the truth about Jesus, the world refuses to love the truth. And they actively believe what is false about God. In other words, they reject the message that we saw Jesus preach in the beginning of Mark of repentance and believing the gospel. They have rejected Christ. And finally, whereas the church will obtain the glory of the Lord, the world will be forever separated from the presence of the Lord and from his glory. Everything that's great and marvelous about our destiny, about what God has done for us, is the exact, is the exact opposite of what is going to be happening to the world. And this should shape our reality. This should shape and shock us as we live our lives every day. The people that we're walking by, who are far from Christ aren't going to have the same sort of life that we have. When they die, they will be separated from God for eternity. They are no different. They are no different than us. They have no reason, maybe other than that they just haven't heard the gospel yet. Maybe that's the only reason they are still part of the world. Maybe that is the only reason they are still far from Christ. And that that should eat at us a little bit every day. That should nag at us. Because we weren't weren't so great. We weren't excellent. We weren't the the cream of the crop. We weren't the, the best fruit on the vine. We were dead. We were dead just like them. And somebody, 
someone, someone told us about Jesus. Someone told us that there's a Savior who wants to know us personally and love us with a love that will overcome everything in our life. That there is nothing that can separate you from the love of this Jesus. Somebody told us that message. And that has changed the destiny of our lives forever because of what they told us. And that should eat at us. And that should nag at us. And that should be something that we're aware of every single day. Because one, we are so thankful and we love who we are in Christ. That we love it with all that we are. That we think about it. That it drives us. That it motivates us. That it gets us up in the morning. And, and because we're thinking about that, we realize, we know that there are people who that's not true of. And that in order for, them to, for that to be true of them, they have to hear the word. In Romans 10, Paul gives us uh, an example of how someone gets into the family of God in this real world that we live in, right? It's not, it's not all up here in, in like theological la-la land. It's practical. It's real. It's real life. All you have to do is tell them the message of the gospel. You have to tell them the good news of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is offering to them through his crucified body on a cross that paid for sins, that went into a tomb, a real tomb, a real Jesus did this, and he rose again on the third day so that he could give life to all men who would believe in his name, who would trust in him, who would cling to him for dear life. And so this is the Jesus. This is the message. This is the truth that I hope nags at us as we lay down in bed at night. That nags at us as we go to work each day. That nags at us as we raise our children. That the truth about us is so beautiful. So beautiful. That it changes the way that we live our life. And I think Paul is thinking this way too. I think Paul knows that this is the case. Because he's a Christian, right? He's Paul. He like saw Jesus in a vision on the road to Damascus. He's Paul. And what does Paul say? What does he say in response to this beautiful truth? This, this stark comparison between the world and Christians. The first thing he does is he tells us to stand and hold. So stand and hold. Verse 15. So then, so as a result, because what I've just described is true, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Standing firm is a very common admonition in Paul. It says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5, 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in the faith, in the freedom of Christ, in the unity of the Spirit. Paul calls us to stand firm. But not only stand firm. He wants us also to hold to something. He says, hold. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. Either by our spoken word or by our letter. So tradition. What is this tradition? It's an interesting word. If you think back in, in Matthew, it talks about how tradition is actually kind of a bad thing, right? Where you can teach the traditions of men as though they're from God. And that's, that's bad. And you shouldn't do that. And you'll get judged if you do such things. So what is this tradition? And, and I think it's clear from this text that this tradition indicates the apostolic tradition of the church. The, the teachings of the apostles that have both uh, theological and also very practical applications in life. In our life. And the reason that I think it has this practical application as well, it's not just theological and airy, is that Paul uses the same word again in 2 Thessalonians 3 6 through 15. And so starting in verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For yourselves know that you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to any of you. So tradition, as Paul is using it, is both doctrinal and practical. It is doctrinal that it says things about who Christ is, right? Christ is Savior. Christ is God. Christ is King. Christ is coming again. These are things that we have from our tradition. But tradition is also fully functional in its doctrine. Tradition of the apostles is an acting tradition, just like Jesus was an acting savior. Jesus taught and he did. The church taught and it does. We as church teach and we do. But we, we don't only follow just the example of Jesus. right? Jesus had a very sort of short ministry, uh, he died at the end of it. And not all of us are called to imitate him in that way. Uh, we're not all supposed to be crucified, right? But we are to, to follow also the, the um, tradition passed on to us by the church, by his apostles, by the people of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me, referring to himself, as I am of Christ. So the tradition is a Christ-centered tradition. It's a Christ-generated tradition. It's not a man-made one. And it's an extension of Jesus' life and ministry on this earth. It is Christ through his church creating people renewed after his image and inhabiting his creation to hollow his name, establish his kingdom, and to do his will. The tradition is multifaceted. It's complicated, it's deep, it's broad, it touches on all aspects of our life, right? Christianity is not just about what you do on Sunday morning. It's about the very way that you go about working at your job, loving your wife, raising your kids, being a friend to people, caring for the poor, caring for the unborn, right? This is all stuff that Jesus cares about and is established and brought to us by a tradition passed on. And so what, what, I just want to focus in on one thing, one aspect of, of the tradition 
Um, and that is this pattern that Paul lays out for us in three, uh, three, six through, uh, what is it? Seven, eight, three, six through, uh, 12. Um, and it's, it's you got to keep in mind, right, that who the church is. Who are you as a church? What has God done for you? So verse 7, we'll start in verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. So Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, they laid down their very rights for the sake and for the good of other people. Paul filled up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church, to borrow what Paul says in Colossians 1.23. By coming to them, he comes to them without flattery, nor with a pretext for greed. That's from 1 Thessalonians 2.5. I mean, he worked night and day among them. He did everything in his power to make sure that he was not a burden upon them and that they could hear the good news about who Jesus was. He wanted them to hear and believe the gospel. Again, that Romans 10 sort of chain of hearing and and believing and calling upon the name of the Lord. And he wanted them to be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith. That's why Paul laid down his life and gave up his rights for the church. And this should sound terribly familiar to us. Because isn't it Jesus who lays down his life for his sheep? Isn't it Jesus who says, I lay down my life for the sheep? And that's from John 10, 15. And if you want some, some extra bonus, go read 14 through 16 and see the deeper connections between knowing God, the missions of Jesus, the missions of his church, and obedience And so Paul, in the course of the calling of his life, because he was a missionary, he was called to go, he saw a group of people in need. He saw Thessalonians. He saw people living in the city. And he he said, they don't have the gospel yet. They don't know about Jesus. He saw this group in need. And he used his knowledge of the truth about who he was in Christ, who the church is, And he let that inform the way that he lived among these people. He saw that he had a savior who laid down his rights, who came down from heaven to save his people. And so Paul, in the same way, lays down his rights and lays down his life for people in need, for people who haven't heard the gospel yet. Jesus laid down his life for people in need. What are the needs that you see? Who are the people that God is showing you, that has shown you, that you can lay down your life for? We live in the age of deep and terrible darkness. And there are needs everywhere among us. And I know you see some. I know I see some. And I know that there are probably needs that we as a church are just missing. That there are people around us that we don't see their need. And so, Lord, open our eyes to see the needs. Let us see the people who are like sheep without a shepherd. Open our eyes to the world around us 
that are dead on the vine, just like we were. And use us, Lord, use us to advance your kingdom. And that's, that's the next point. That's the next thing I want us to see. Is that Paul, immediately after this, he wants the church to pray in advance. He wants them to, to pray and to do. In, in 2.16... Through 17, he says, now, now may our Lord, that's a, a sign that Paul is praying. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. He continues in 3, 1 through 2 by asking the church of Thessalonica to pray for him. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us. Pray for me and my associates. That as... So that this is kind of hidden. This is Joe's addition here. That as we go about doing what we did with you, laying down our lives just like we laid them down for you, as we go about doing that, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. We want God's name to be magnified and glorified. And we're going we're gonna to live our lives like we've lived with you. And we're going to lay them down for others. We're going to lay them down so that others may hear and know the gospel. And as we do that, pray for us. Pray for us that the gospel may be honored like it happened among you. Now, both of these prayers understand that the world is not all sunshine and roses. May our Lord Jesus Christ comfort your hearts. What does it need comfort for? If there aren't going to be things that rise up and try to throttle your throat as you do this. What do you need comfort for if you won't be opposed by evil and wicked men? What do you need comfort for? Paul also prays, pray for us that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith. You will see rejection, church. As we go about doing this. There are people who will reject you. There will be people who may hate you. As a result of what you do. But Jesus did the exact same thing. People hated Jesus. And all he wanted to do was save them. All he wanted to do was lay down his life. That they may have life. And it will happen to you too. But know this. That know that God is a God of comfort. That he will deliver you. And the other thing these prayers understand is that the world is a place where the elect are busy. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself personally establish your heart in every good work and word. May Jesus do in you to think rightly. To see the world rightly. And as a result, to do things rightly. And again, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. God is at work. And so church, pray in advance. Pray for yourself that God may work in you and conform you into the image of his son. Both in the way you think and the way you act. Pray that while you lay down your lives for the good of others and risk much to save any, that God would be with you. And that God would be doing the work that he needs to do to call men to himself. And pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead 
and be honored that the work would be fruitful as we go about our work in this world. And as you pray, do. Lay down your life for the people of God. They are hidden out in the world. We don't know who they are. We don't know where we're going to find them. But give of your rights to be and your desires to be comfortable, to be entertained, to be safe, to be well thought of in the world, to have cultural influence. Give those up for the benefit of others that some might hear the gospel and that some may believe. Demonstrate with your life the beauty of your doctrine and join in the apostolic tradition of the church. They knew God and his pursuing extravagant love and made that love known. They made it known. What group of people did they make it known to? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 gives us a description of some of them. He says, make it known to the sexually immoral, to the idolaters, to the adulterers, to homosexuals, to thieves, to the greedy, to drunks, to swindlers. These are all people who need to know the love of God for them. They need to hear the gospel. They don't need our angry words. They don't need us to be mad at them. Some may who are obstinate in their rejection of Christ. They may need to hear the law. But most of them need to know and to hear the love of Christ. They need to know and to hear from our lips that God desires even them to be saved because he chose me and he chose you. And these people, they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the truth of who Jesus is. And God through you will see fit to save some. He will save some. There will be fruit from what you do. And in obeying him, in obeying God, you will become like God who laid down his life for others on a cross. We will share, the Bible says, share in the fellowship of his sufferings. We will experience what it's like to have the character and person of Christ in us as we do that. And don't you want to be like Jesus? Don't you want to know what it's like to be him? To love like he loves and to care like he cares and to see like he sees because he is God of the universe. He is everything we desire. He is our joy and our crown. And he calls you today to be with him, to know him. And I would, I would beg you, I would beg you, if you are not in Christ, if you have rejected this God, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. God, you are exceedingly good. And the truth of who you are is exceedingly beautiful. And use the word that you have given us. Use the gospel to change our lives and to make us more like Jesus. Let us grasp onto him and never let go. Let us hold on to his feet and beg him to save us moment by moment and day by day. We ask this in Jesus' name.